Revelation 22. You know, the thing about preaching Revelation, if you hadn't picked up on this, it's difficult. I mean, there's a lot of things in it that are hard to understand, hard to interpret. But one of the things that I am very thankful for is this. When John brings the book to its conclusion, or when the Holy Spirit does, it's very clear. Very clear. It leaves really no ambiguity as to what the message is. Three times in chapter 22, Jesus says the words, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And so with all the difficulties interpreting this book, it comes down to a very clear and simple message. Jesus is coming. Be ready. I draw your attention starting at verse 12. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I ask you to please work by the power of your Holy Spirit to allow us to hear the message today. Father, the, the truth in this case is very clear. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us to not just know it on an intellectual level, but to be transformed by it. Reach down and touch us, O oh Lord. Reach down and stir our spirits, O oh God. And reach down and bring glory to your name. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. I recognize that the title of this message, the judgment that he brings, is not one to exactly win an audience today. Many of you, quite frankly, will read that message and your mind will go back to the preachers you grew up with that were known as hellfire and brimstone preachers that you didn't know if the sermon would end before they passed out, their faces would be so red. And quite frankly, that message you always heard turned you off. 
Because all you heard about was the judgment of God and the reality of hell and you never heard any grace. So that any mention of judgment causes you to automatically build up a wall and say, I've heard all that before. On the other end of the spectrum are those who feel like any mention of God judging is simply not an accurate portrayal of who God is. They would say our God is not a God who judges. Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, as well as a well-known author, tells about a story, an instance that happened to him after one service. He had finished preaching on judgment. And after the service, he was met by a woman who simply looked at him and said these words, I think your preaching the judgment of God is very offensive. God is not a God who judges. Keller looked at her and he said, I just have a question for you. Why are you not offended by the fact that God forgives? Why doesn't that offend you? She said, I'm not sure what you mean. Why would his forgiveness offend me? He said, well, in other cultures, say example in the Far East, their culture has no problem hearing that God judges. They believe that God must judge if he is truly God. They have a problem hearing of God's grace and forgiveness. They have a hard time believing that God would forgive those who deserve his judgment. So Keller said, let me ask you, why should our Western understanding trump their understanding of who God is? Don't we need both? And indeed we do. If we preach the grace of God without the truth of his judgment, we gut grace of its meaning. If we preach the judgment of God without the truth of His grace and forgiveness, we lead ourselves and others to hopelessness. So we must hold out both truths. Whenever one truth of God is neglected to the expense of another truth of God, that's where heresy enters in because we don't get a full picture of who He is. And furthermore, when we do not preach the full picture of who God is, we rob Him of the fullness of His glory. We detract from the majesty of His mercy, and we end up negating the justice that His judgment brings. So today from this text, I want us to see that when Jesus Christ returns, He will deliver the final and irrevocable verdict on our lives. And at that point, once the verdict is rendered, there will be no opportunity for an appeal. Notice verse 12 is clear on this with the message that I mentioned earlier. Behold, I'm coming soon. Notice what he says bringing my recompense with me. Now recompense is defined by the very next phrase. To repay everyone for what he has done. A recompense is a wage. It is the payment that is owed a person. And notice that the payment, the wage, that Jesus will bring with him when he returns is based on what each person has or has not done. Now think about two ramifications of this. What that means, first of all, is that our actions 
matter. What we do has ramifications far beyond this world. Our ramifications reveal where our allegiance lies. For those that read the Gospels, you shouldn't be surprised by this. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells of this day of judgment. And he says that on that day, he, being the great and good shepherd, will divide the sheeps, the sheeps, the sheep from the goats. And when that division occurs, the question is asked, why? What's the basis for the division? And Jesus says this to the sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited. I was in jail, you came. He says the sheepiness of the sheep is revealed by their actions. The goats speak up. Lord, Lord when, when did we see you sick? When did we see you hungry? When did we see? Because if we had known it was you, Jesus, we, we would have fed you. We would have visited you. We would have, have given you something to drink. Jesus says, whatever you've done to the very least of these, you've done to me. You see, the sheep look through eyes that see Jesus in the downcast and the downtrodden. They see the image of God in every individual. And because the love of God compels them, the sheep act to show the love of God in tangible ways. So not only do our actions have ramifications into eternity, we are held personally responsible before God for our actions. Each of us will individually answer to God for what we did or did not do. Mark Herod, why didn't you give more to the poor? Why did you turn your head and ignore that homeless person? And the same question will be asked of you. The day of account will come. And we will be responsible to God for what we have done or what we haven't done. And on that day, when the verdict is given, our wage will be either the blessing of God or the cursing of God. Now there's a question that probably comes up at this point, And I want to be clear in answering this. Because in preaching this text, there's a danger that we begin to teach and believe that we are saved by our works. So hearing what I've just said, does that mean that there is a standard of goodness that we have to attain? And if we attain that goodness, then we are saved apart from grace? The answer to that is no. Look down to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. So the blessing on the day when Jesus comes and renders his verdict will be given to those who have washed their robe. Now a robe is a metaphorical way of speaking about 
our lifestyle, our very being. Robes in the time of John would represent status. You could tell a person's status or position in society by the robe they wore. A certain color represented being a part of the noble class or the senate. Wearing another kind of robe shown that you were a middle class Roman and certainly a slave pretty much had no robe at all. Quite frankly, we're not that different today, are we? Our robes just carry an emblem of a polo player on a horse. Or our cars carry the status of a certain make and model. They represent our values. You see, the robes came to represent righteousness and purity. To represent where our values were. This is not the only place that the washing of robes is mentioned in Revelation. On the screen you'll see Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. John has seen a great people standing before God in pure white robes. And the angel asked him, who are these, John? John said to him, sir, you know. And he, the angel, said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's a way of saying their lives have been cleaned. And if we take robes to mean the idea of righteousness and purity, it reminds us that our very best efforts at righteousness, our very best efforts at purity, fall short of God's standard and need to be cleaned. When I was studying this and just reflecting on it, my mind went back to when I was about, oh, I think nine or ten years old. It was an Easter Sunday morning in Athens, Tennessee, and the Herod family was doing its Easter tradition where everybody would get up early. We would put on our finest. Mom had a suit for little nine or ten-year-old Mark, and my brother Doug, and Dad had his leisure suit. Yes, Arnold Herod rocked the leisure suit. And we would go out in front of the house, and Dad had a tripod with a camera, and he'd set the timer, and we would get our family picture made before going to church on Easter Sunday morning. Well, this day, I got out of the house before everyone else. I was dressed in my, my nine-year-old my nine suit and was just hanging out outside. And as a nine- or ten-year-old, I started getting bored waiting on everyone. So I thought, hey, there's my bicycle. There's no problem with riding your bike. I'm just waiting. So I got on my bicycle and started riding, not on the road. Oh, no, no. This was an off-road Easter Sunday morning. So I'm riding through the yard when Mom comes out and she yells out, Mark. Well, at the moment she yells out, Mark, I do a hard turn on the wheel. Now this was an Easter Sunday morning where there had been a heavy dew and the grass was wet. And when I cut the wheel of my bicycle, the back tire started sliding and down Mark Herod went, sliding with his bicycle in his Easter Sunday morning suit. Oh, I wish I would have kept sliding just into the neighbor's house. Because when I stopped sliding and stood up, there was grass and mud stain all down the side of the suit to which Imogene Herod was going what? go in you see my best was no longer clean and it wasn't fit for the picture that's a picture of our best before God we've stained it our intentions may not have been to do that but our best, our righteousness our robes need to be cleansed. They need a good washing. And that's exactly what Jesus does. 
You see, by faith, we take all of his good works, the perfect life that Jesus lived, and by faith, they are applied to us. His white robes become my white robes by faith. And so, by faith in him, I am saved and my robes are clean, cleansed. And our sins, though they be as scarlet, are made white as snow. And though we are far from God, we are brought near to God. And even though we have rebelled against God in our actions and our attitudes, we are brought in and seated at His table as a part of His family, all by faith, through grace, given in Jesus Christ. So we are not saved by what we do at all. We are saved by what Jesus has done. So then some may say, well, if we're not saved by what we do, do our actions really matter? Yes, they do. Because our actions and our works are done for His glory. Because we have been justified. Because we have been made right with God. You see, that's the other part of faith in what Jesus did. It's not just trusting his sinless life. That applies his righteousness to us. But what about the penalty for our wrongdoings? You see, God could not be just and ignore those crimes. He couldn't just sweep them under the rug and turn his eyes from them. So when Jesus died upon the cross, he was taking God's wrath, which is the penalty of my sin and your sin and all the sins ever committed, and he poured out his judgment upon Jesus so that his wrath is satisfied. The conviction has been handed down and Jesus suffered the sentence for our sins. And because of that, our lives are transformed. Because of that, we do good to point to his glory. Now once again, I hate to bombard you with questions, but somebody would ask, Pastor... Does that mean the non-believer, the person who does not believe in Jesus, does that mean that they can't do good? After all, there are millions that have given to relief efforts with Hurricane Harvey that slammed into the Texas coast. Even the person that does not believe can do good things. They can do acts of kindness. But here's the difference. And this is what is crucial. Our good deeds, our feeding the poor, our ministering to others, proceeds from our faith because that is what pleases God. So because I have been saved, I want to act in a way that points people to the love of God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. So a good work done apart from believing in God is not pleasing to Him because it disregards the source of all goodness. Our works point to the source of all goodness. And in the end, we want people to know the goodness of God. You see, the greatest good that you and I can do for a person is to tell them the gospel. 
So all the good works that we do as believers become platforms to demonstrate the love of God so that we may tell of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Our good works are to simply be windows that open the world to a heart that is motivated by love of God and neighbor, to a mind driven by belief in God, and to a life that is aimed at his glory. So our faith is shown by our works and the motivations behind them to show we live based upon a different set of values and belief and because of that it says blessed what is the blessing that is given to the one who has washed their robes and lives faithfully and doing good look at verse 14 again so that here's the result the result of being saved having our robes washed and living for him is that one we have the right to the tree of life eternal life we have the credentials now to be given life eternal the credentials of faith in Jesus Christ and notice the second thing which is connected to it he says that they may enter the city by the gates Remember, there is this merging in the creation to come of garden and city. And he says, because of faith in Jesus, you are blessed by being given eternal life and being allowed into the city, the community of God. Herein is our reward. You see, we dare not materialize the rewards of Christ as if to say, well, if I live good enough, I'll get a bigger mansion than everybody else. Or I'll be in the, the best part of the city. No, the reward for us is to be in the presence of God. And I tend to think that as we live faithfully, that means we will have greater experiences of God's glory so that each person is filled to their capacity of God's glory, a capacity created by how we live here. And we will be allowed into the city, the city where God dwells. But for those who are not ready, those who have not washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, they will receive the curse. To be cursed is to be op the opposite of being blessed. If blessing is the smile of God, to be cursed is to bear the frown of God. To be cursed is to live under the shadow of His displeasure. The curse is placed on those described in verse 15. I want to take a moment just to look at this description of those who are cursed so that we can understand why they suffer. Outside are the dogs. This is a term from the Old Testament. A dog was used to describe someone who has no regard for the holy. A dog is the person who treats that which is sacred as something that is sinful. They have no regard for a sense of the presence of God. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the idea of transforming or exchanging the sacred for the non-sacred was expressed in sexual sin. Thus, a dog became a term for a person who was sexually permissive. The next phrase is saucer. This was applicable specifically to Ephesus, one of the cities that received this letter first. Ephesus was a hotbed of, of spiritism, 
of sorcerers and magicians. And the whole point they tried to do was to take incantations and magical rituals to control God. They believed that if they had the right charm, the right incantation, they could make the spirit world do what they wanted the spiritual world to do. You see, behind this sin of sorcery is the attempt to control God, to manipulate God, to have God do what we want Him to do. Notice again the sexually moral is mentioned. This is the Greek word pornea. The phrase pornea or the sexually immoral refers to one who lives life characterized by blatant disregard for God's standards about sexuality. We see this in our world around us. Where today, when it comes to sexuality and definitions of what makes male and female, we cast off God's standards. And we make ourselves the sole arbitrator of what sexuality, masculinity, and femininity is about. That's covered under that phrase, pornea. Murderers. Those who have disregard for life. Idolaters. An idolater is one who values something other than God. And notice it ends with the phrase, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. One writer described this lover of falsehood as a person who desires the spiritual security of the church but also wants the economic security of Babylon. So they practice falsehood. When they're with the church, they act like the church. When they're with the world, they act like the world. And they love and they practice this in order to gain what they believe will make them happy. Now a close examination of our lives will reveal that every one of us in some way is described on this list. Can any of us say before God that we have never had a thought or an action that deviated from God's standard? Can any of us say we've been totally sexually pure? Have any of us ever valued popularity more than Jesus? Has there ever been a time where we've cared more about what people said about us so that we were willing to compromise our faith? Have we ever exploded at anyone in anger and devalued them, gossiped about them, torn them down even though they're made in the image of God? We've disregarded that and looked upon them with hatred rather than love. Can any of us really stand before God and say we have never valued anything more than we have valued Him? Can any of us stand before God and say not guilty? What that means is that we will face the curse. Notice it's described in verse 15 by the one word outside. Those just described are outside the city. Not in the new creation. They are not in Eden. They are outside the city. 
This fits with the imagery from the Old Testament as well as what Jesus said. That to die separated from God in rebellion against him is to be cast outside into the outer darkness. Hell is real. And even though we would like to ignore it or explain it away, we can't. Jesus spoke more about hell than perhaps any other subject. For if God is just, then he must sentence the guilty. And that sentence is to be banished from the garden of his glory for eternity. It is to be outside in a place where Jesus described as full of darkness, weeping, wailing, crying, and anger. Common, or I'm sorry, despite the common pictures of hell as being described as a place where it's an ultimate party and we hear people with a false bravado saying, well, yeah, hell won't be that bad. I'll just be there with my buddies and we're going to party with Satan. Yeah, my friends, you have no understanding of the righteousness of God. Hell is judgment, and it's eternal torment. Now before we claim that this is unfair, the Bible teaches us very something about the credentials of our judge. Look at verse 13. Three phrases. One, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Two, I am the first and the last. Three, the beginning and the end. He is saying that before time began, I was. When time ends, Jesus will be. It's a way of saying that he is before time and after time, and he is sovereign over everything in between. And the point he's getting at is this. He sees everything clearly. He is just when he judges. He is the judge that we long for. You see, the goddess Justice was always pictured as being blindfolded. So when Justice makes her verdict, it's done not on the basis of what she sees. It's not made on the basis of skin color or, or the amount of money in your bank account. Justice would hold a scale saying that Justice would weigh the evidence fairly and rightly. And then Justice held a sword to say that the verdict would come with moral weight and would come swiftly. Understand that the justice we long for is found in Jesus. And that's what should terrify us at the same time. Where's our hope? If we are all guilty and God is is just and sees and judges fairly and rightly we are in trouble but here is the hope look to verse 16 I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches Jesus has sent a message judgment has not come yet there's still time He's testifying to the churches. Repent. Live for Him. Because the world needs to know the hope of the gospel. And notice how He identifies Himself with another, another three or two phrases. The root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He says, I am coming as the Messiah, the one who has conquered death and hell. So that all who believe in me do not have to fear being vanquished. They rather can glory in the victory brought by Jesus Christ. Verse 17 is the invitation. 
the Spirit and the bride. Why the Spirit? The Spirit convicts of sin. The Spirit draws us unto Jesus. And so the Spirit and the bride, the church, extend the invitation, come. Judgment is not yet, but it will be. Come without delay. And this invitation is issued to those who are thirsty, those who desire life-giving water without price. He says, come. There's no price because the consequence has already been paid. There's an author by the name of James Harriot. Before he became a writer, he was a veterinarian. And you remember, just shortly after graduating from vet school, he'd gotten married. He'd gotten his first job at a veterinarian clinic. And he was the low man on the totem pole, but he was working his way up. His boss, the, the, the doctor who owned the practice, became aware that James was approaching his very first wedding anniversary. So he came to James and he said, James, you need to take your wife to this restaurant. James said, I can't afford that. That's the most expensive place in town. James, you need to do it. And his boss was so convincing, as bosses can be, that James said, all right, all right, I'll do it. Well, the day he planned to take his wife, he got behind in his work, but he didn't want to be late to pick up his wife. So he picked up his wife and he said, Honey, as we go to the restaurant, I've got to make one stop, just one stop. It'll take me just a moment. This is a very good patient. And I told him I would stop by. So he stopped at the farm, and as he's looking at the, in the stalls, he bends over and his wallet falls out of his jacket pocket. But he doesn't know it. He and his wife get back in the car, and they drive, and they eat. They have a great meal. The waiter, at the meal is over, puts the check on the table. James reaches in. There's a problem. The waiter comes back by and James says, I, I, I don't have any money with me. Will you let me, can I use your phone and make a call? I, I'm sorry. And the waiter picked up the check and looked at it and he said, I've made a mistake, sir. I wasn't supposed to give you a check. Your check's already been paid for. And James realized what had happened. His boss had prepaid for the meal. I want you to think about that scenario for a moment. One day, one day, the check's going to come. Payday will arrive. And on that day, you'll be like James. Lord, I, I don't have any means to pay. I'm guilty and I can't make up for it. And on that day, you will either hear Jesus say, check's been paid. Come into the meal. Or, you'll hear him say, depart from me. I don't know you. And this is your recompense for living in rebellion against God. What will it be? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.